Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we are going to dive into the text of 1 Timothy, starting here in chapter 1, obviously, with verse 1. And we are talking about Timothy, and we're going to use today to finish up introducing uh, the book, even though we've already spent a couple of episodes doing just that, talking a little bit about the background of Timothy and so forth. But we'll use these first couple of verses here to uh, to kind of get us into the text and uh, to talk once again about the Pauline greeting and so forth. And of course, I'm tipping my uh, my hand here a little bit, tipping tipping my hat and showing my hand uh, that that I obviously believe in Pauline authorship, um, and that should go without saying because it's pretty self-evident here from the opening verses. So as we get into this, let's just take a moment and read this uh, opening of this letter, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope— to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so by way of using the text for the introduction here, uh, let's first consider the author. Who is the author? Well, it's pretty uh, pretty self-explanatory here because the very opening word of this epistle is none other than Paul, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Okay, so as we consider this, uh, let's look at the style. We're used to corresponding in a different way. The recipient is still mentioned at the top of the letter. We're, we're used to a letter that says, dear so-and-so, the recipient first. Uh, but that's not how this is done. And when we write to somebody, not only do we put their name at the beginning, if we're going to sign our name to something like a card or a letter or something like that, which we often would do in formal writing or whatnot, uh, then we would put our name at the end or the bottom of the letter. Perhaps one of the reasons for the change is that we send letters today, and this is almost getting dated because of technology and stuff, but if we are going to send a letter, we send that letter in an envelope, which usually includes a return address. So when people open their mailbox and they see a letter, they already know who it's from when they open it. Generally speaking, there are obviously exceptions to that. Not so in New Testament times. There's no postal system. Letters were hand-carried and delivered. So practically speaking, it makes sense to establish the author of the letter right away. If Paul can't make the journey and he's writing to somebody, he's going to write the letter, send it with somebody to deliver it, either to a church or to a, a specific recipient, in this case, Timothy. And that person is probably not going to be Paul. They're going to hand the letter. He's going to get this parchment or whatever it's written on. And so the first thing that he's going to see, there's no envelope, there's nothing like that. Papers, uh, you know, obviously it's a totally different day and age. We just have an abundance of paper, uh, but this is not the case there. 
And so the first thing that Timothy is going to see is he's going to see who the author is. And, and, and not just Timothy, but the way letters were written back then that makes sense just from a practical standpoint. One author said this, ancient Greek letters had a standardized opening formula comprising the sender's name, there it is at the beginning, the addressee's name, and a brief salutation, usually just greeting. So Paul is conforming to this pattern, but he's bringing a special Holy Spirit-inspired twist. Okay, he does introduce himself, but he makes significant modifications of his own. So if we think about the ancient Greek letters and style, it, the the opening of this letter would have gone something like Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, probably would have had to say something like that. Otherwise, you know, is Paul, Saul a common name? Yeah. So he's going to have to give some indication of what Paul it is. But Paul to Timothy, greetings. I mean, it would be something that short, and that's going to be the customary type of greeting. And keep in mind that people aren't going to get uh, just a ton of correspondence. There's not going to be junk mail. You're not going to be getting solicitations and ads from businesses and things like that. I mean, this is going to be a rare event and probably from somebody personal. So the fact is, is when you see that first name, you're probably going to know right away who it is. In today's day and age, uh, we use uh, we use surnames in addition to first names. And so it would go something like this, John Smith to Robert Wendell, greeting. Okay, I just made those names up. I have no idea who those are, if they're real people or not. Who knows? I'm sure they exist, but I was just using that for sake of illustration. So the style is a little bit different. And like we said, Paul is using it, but with some modifications. So first thing we want to zero in here on is Paul. Paul. He's using his Greek Roman name instead of his Jewish name, which is Saul. So he is known by both, but he's going to choose to identify with his Greco-Roman name instead. This would be in keeping also with his Holy Spirit and uh, inspired comments of 1 Corinthians 9, where he doesn't want to be a stumbling block. Okay, you go back and read that context there. But we first encounter Paul as Saul in Acts chapter 8, verse 58, at the stoning of Stephen. Acts 9 records his conversion, and he is referred as Saul all the way through Acts 13 when he sets out on his first missionary journey with Barnabas after spending time at the church in Antioch. Then when we get to Acts 13, verse 9, we see him first referred to as Paul, and from then on out, he is Paul. So the question we have to ask is why? Is this significant like the name changes that were given in the Old Testament, like when Abram became Abraham and Sarai became Sarah, uh, Jacob became Israel? That's where God stepped in and said, no longer shall your name be, but it shall be this. We don't see that, and I've seen people make reference or try to make something of that, and I just want to point out here that we don't have that kind of record here. There's no significant change here other than he has a Jewish name and he has a Greco-Roman name, so that's really how we need to think of that. So in his missionary journeys through Asia, or what we've established in the other introductory episodes as modern-day Turkey and in Macedonia, modern-day Greece— and even when he goes to Rome, where Jews were far less prevalent, 
it would have made sense just from a practical standpoint for him to identify by his Greco-Roman name rather than his Hebrew name. And so I think that as we see Paul go on, and by the time he begins writing, of course, Luke is going to record for us, uh, you know, it's going to, he's going to introduce us to Paul as Saul back in Acts chapter 8 and so forth. Luke's going to provide the introduction, but by the time we actually see Paul writing his own material, he's well-established in his missionary journeys and writing to churches that he helped establish, and he's already had correspondence with them in some cases. You know, look back at the Corinthian correspondence and uh, look at the Thessalonians when he is indicating that he received some sort of correspondence where he got questions. He says, well, you asked about this. Here's my answer. You asked about this. You have no need that I write to you on that because he's basically saying, I already taught you those things, but since you asked again, here it is. So we get a little bit of an indication that there was conversation going on between uh, and dialogue between Paul and some of these other churches. But by the time he writes, he's, he's in missionary territory. And even though he's an apostle to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and he says as much that the gospel goes to the house of God first, uh, to, to the house of Abraham first, and then to the Greeks, he still is really in both, you know, both territories firmly planted. So it makes sense just pragmatically, practically speaking, that he's going to identify by his Greco-Roman name. That's all Paul is. Of course, we do know that Paul means small or little. Uh, Do we need to make much of that? No, it's just the name that he was given. So we'll move on. And this is not really contested. Other of his works are, but this is very clearly he is identifying himself, whether or not he's using an amanuensis uh, to write these things down and he's using dictation. Uh, the, the point is, as he is the author of this and he identifies himself as such. And he be- begins right at the beginning, uh, right off the bat saying, I'm, you know, Paul. And then he goes on using the first person personal pronouns, right? To Timothy, my child in the faith. Verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, who is the I there, right? That's Paul speaking. So he identifies himself in verse one. And then when we see that first person pronoun or first person pronominal use, we're going to tie it back to Paul. So that's his Greco-Roman name. How then does he go on to identify himself, especially in an age where we don't really have a lot of surnames. Well, he's going to identify himself further by this next phrase, an apostle of Christ Jesus, this adjectival phrase here, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Here we have the apostolic view or office in view, and that's very important here, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Apostolos, this word here, is a very common word, just means sent out. It took on specific meaning in the New Testament with the church. So to call yourself a sent one and to identify yourself as a sent one is to now take something that is common and make it a proper pronoun, if you will. And that's what he's doing here with this. So he's taking this very common thing. I, I'm sending, you know, you know, where is, uh, where, where is Mark? Okay, let's just ask the question. Where, where is John Mark or whatever? Oh, I sent him to the store, you know, when he was a little kid. I'm just imagining a conversation. You know, somebody comes over and says, where's John Mark? I sent him over to the market to get something. I sent him. I apostolos, right? 
But to identify as a sent one, if, if you find John Mark when he's a little kid or Paul when he's a kid or Luke or whoever when they're a kid and you find them running an errand in the market for their parents or whatever it happens to be during that time period, right? And you ask them, hey, what are you doing? Or who are you, right? Okay, that's probably a better question. You come across this kid in the market, no parents around, he's buying something, and you want to find out who this child is. You say, who are you? Are they going to answer, I am a sent one? You know, that that's not really an answer. You know, of course your, your mother sent you. So, you know, if this is John Mark, I don't know why I'm picking on John Mark. Who knows? But let, let's just stay with it, okay? So if it's John Mark... And you're talking to him at the market. You're trying to figure out who you are or who he is. And so you ask him, hey, you know, young man, he's a teenager, let's say, uh, who are you? And what are you doing? My, oh, I'm John Mark, the sent one. That wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, his mother sent him there to do something or his father sent him there. But it, to identify that way, again, it takes on new meaning in the New Testament within the church because to identify as a sent one is going to identify you with the person of Jesus Christ. Who is the one that sent you? Uh, you didn't send yourself. Somebody else sent you. Where did that commission come from? Who's it tied to? That's all going to tie back to Jesus Christ. It's going to tie back to the gospel. All right. Uh, one commentator said this. Uh, now, in the broadest sense, an apostle... Uh, a term derived from a verb which means to send, right, is anything which is sent or by which something is sent or anyone who is sent or by whom a message is sent. So that's the broadest term. So this author goes on to say, this is J.N.D. Kelly uh, in the Pastoral Epistles Commentary from Black's New Testament Commentary series. He says, in classical Greek, the term could refer to a naval expedition, an apostolic boat, for instance. That's kind of an interesting usage there. An apostolic boat was a cargo vessel. In later Judaism, apostles were envoys sent out by the Jerusalem Patriarchate to collect tribute from the Jews of the dispersion. So you had this coming into use in different ways. But in the New Testament, then, the term takes on a distinctly religious sense. In its widest meaning, apostolos does refer to any gospel messenger, anyone who is sent out on a spiritual mission, anyone who in that capacity represents his sender and brings the message of salvation. So we want to make a distinction here because there is a sense where if we are believers, we have believed the gospel, we have received the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of eternal life, along with that promise of eternal life, along with the gospel promise, we have received a commission, what we call the Great Commission. In that Great Commission, to use Mark's terminology in Mark 16, we are to go into the world and preach. So we are sent and pre to, to preach what? Preach the gospel to every person, to every creature. Okay, so in that sense, we are all sent ones because of the Great Commission. But is Paul talking about just the general sense of the Great Commission? I don't think so. And really, no one does. Contextually here, when he uses this definite article, an apostle, he's talking about the office of apostle. 
So that's going to be very different. And I think we've talked about that before, but that's going to set him apart from even his children in the faith, right? So other people who are going to be discipled, whether by Paul or others, people like Barnabas, Epaphroditus, Apollos, Silvanus, and Timothy, right? They're all called at various times in the scripture apostles, right? Acts 14, 14, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6, and verse 9, Philippians 2, verse 25, 1 Thessalonians 2, 6, First uh, Corinthians five or fifteen seven. Okay, but these are not ones who occupy the office of apostle. They represent God's cause, but they are are not called in the official office sense. Okay, so why identify as an apostle? Use that definite article and appeal to the office. There's probably. Uh, What's being tied in here is the knowledge that this letter is not just going to be read by Timothy, that it is going to be read to the entire church, and it still is being read to the entire church. So the official appeal is more likely for the church, not just for Timothy. Again, Jan D. Kelly on the topic, he said, by this, he means that he is no mere representative of a local church because apostle can be used in that sense, 2 Corinthians 8, 23, Philippians 2, 25. But the Lord's personally chosen ambassador, charged to bear witness to his resurrection and proclaim his gospel. This insistence is important in his eyes as adding weight to his message. It has been questioned whether a loyal colleague like Timothy needed such reassurances, but they have point if the letter was written with an eye to being read out to the Ephesian congregation, in which he had many ill-wishers. That's the point. And what you heard in that description as well was a little bit of an appeal to some of the qualifications, like how do we know who can occupy the role of an apostle? To, to hold the office of an apostle today. We say that that office doesn't exist anymore. Why? Uh, and, and again, we're making the differentiation between the small apostle, as in anybody who's saved is sent, and the actual office of apostle. Uh, and, you know, people look at that. We went go through Ephesians, and we went through Ephesians, you know, Ephesians chapter 4, he gave apostles and prophets, right? And you think about that. Uh, and then pastor, teacher. So apostles fit in there as part of the gifts to the church, but is that an ongoing gift to the church? Well, according to what we see in the New Testament, those who are actually called apostles, there is one unique thing that disqualifies anybody today from being an apostle, and that is they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. They had to see Christ physically after the resurrection. That was very, very important. It had to be named, among other things, recognized by the church, but they had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Okay, we're not talking about dreams and visions and those things. I mean, I, there are all sorts of people today who say they've seen Christ and they've seen God and they've had a vision and those sorts of things. That does not make them an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. Very, very important distinction. And I think we've had that conversation before. All right, so how do we know that it's referring to the office and not just a general uh, a general sense that that can mean that? Well, to to get to the answer to that, we actually have to look at how it's used in the New Testament. We're talking about a Greek word here, apostolos, and we see it a lot in the New Testament. Okay, so in its 
normal usage of the office, talking about the office, not a verb here, but the office, it's used 10 times in the Gospels, almost 30 times in Acts, more than 30 times in the Pauline epistles, eight times in the rest of the New Testament, and with the exception of Hebrews 3.1, where Jesus is mentioned as the apostle and high priest of God, sent from God, that gives us a little picture. So nearly 80 occurrences of this term that are used from a contextual standpoint, contextually it's used to talk about the office of apostle nearly 80 times in the New Testament. And with only a couple of exceptions, every single instance of those nearly 80 times refers to 12 people specifically or Paul. That's it. You can go back and look up every single one of them, and they are going to have reference to one of the 12 or to Paul. No others. That's a very, very important point, and we have to bring it out in that discussion, and it has to be brought out on a somewhat regular basis. But thankfully, the Lord has given us a lot of opportunities in the New Testament to talk about that when we come to the beginning of a letter, for instance, and we once again are confronted with this and have this discussion. So an apostle who holds the office of apostle is one for life. Why? Because his commission is from God, not from the local church. His qualifications are divine. He is uniquely gifted in the area of doctrine and life. The myth of the modern-day apostle is just that. It is a myth. And yes, Paul was an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 and 8, he's talking about the resurrected Christ, and here he's giving his own credentials. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared to also to me. For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he gives his credentials there in the chapter on the resurrection to say that Jesus did appear to him bodily, physically, after all the rest. And he is the least of the apostles. We go through all that list, but he did appear to him. Paul was recognized by the 12 as an apostle and also shared with the 12 five unique characteristics, which are not repeatable in any other age. Okay, let's quickly go through those. I know that we are beyond time for this particular episode, but let's just get through the five characteristics of somebody who holds the office of apostle. In the first, the first characteristic is that apostles have been chosen, called, and sent forth by Christ himself. Okay, they have received their commission directly from him. John 6, 70, John uh, 13 verse 18, John 15, 16, and verse 19, Galatians 1 verse 6, specifically chosen by Christ. Now, I we can't belabor this point, but the people who claim the office today are going to say, Christ chose me. You need to have confirmation and validation, not just within a denomination, but with the, within the church at large. The church writ large recognized the 12 and recognized Paul. Okay? And it was Christ himself who chose all of them. Very, very important. Galatians 1.12 as well, and verses 17 to 18. So they have to be chosen and sent forth by Christ, not by others. Second qualification that is not repeatable in any other age. They are uniquely qualified for their tasks by Jesus and have been ear and eyewitnesses of his words and deeds, especially, or specifically, they are witnesses of his resurrection. This comes up again in Galatians 1.12. We don't have time to go there, but you can look that up. Third 
qualification to be an apostle, to hold the office of apostle, they have to be endowed in a special measure with the Holy Spirit. Okay, now this could get, launch us into a big, deep discussion here, but this this purpose here, this is a special, uh, a special pour, not pouring out, but a special gifting of the Holy Spirit to these individuals who leads them into all truth. So it, it is a different way. The, the uh, Holy Spirit worked with the apostles differently than he works with us. It's not to say that there's some overlap in some of these things, but he, it's different. Look at Matthew 10, verse 20, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, John 16, 7 to 14. I mean, the list just goes on. Fourth qualification of, of holding the apostolic office. God blesses their work, confirms it, its value by means of signs and miracles, giving them much fruit upon their labors. The apostles lived in an age where their works and their testimony and the way God used them in the early church was confirmed by signs and miracles, right? You think about uh, the early in the book of Acts, uh, you know, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you in the name of Jesus as Nazareth, Nazareth, uh, pick up your mat and walk to the lame man, uh, you know, who's sitting there begging for money. Uh, that is a sign. That is a miracle that is confirming the apostolic office. And note that those miracles are not faux miracles. I know some people bristle under that, you know, and say, well, hey, if my migraine really went away, again, you know, somebody who's lame from birth, somebody who's blind from birth, somebody who's a quadriplegic, who is now all of a sudden able to get up and walk, that has never been done. I just want to point out that it has never been documented in today's modern charismatic movement. These things don't happen. Oh yeah, I heard about a case in the interior in Africa where they raised a dead person. Okay, there's gotta be documentation because we have all sorts of documentation of all the signs and the miracles in the New Testament and everything that people say regarding uh, today's charis charismatica, right? Is all, you know, nebulous, it's vague, it's hard uh, to put your finger on. But God blessed those who held the office and they performed signs and miracles for all to see. It was not hidden away and only, you know, just take my word for it. It really happened. It's not like that at all. Fifth, the office is not restricted to a local church, neither does it extend over a short period of time. On the contrary, the office of apostle is for the entire church. The gifting of somebody who is an apostle is not just for the local church. It is for the entire church. Everyone who is an apostle, one of the 12 of Jesus and Paul, they are all apostles for the whole church. We all benefit, whether it's you or it's me, somebody in another state that doesn't know me, somebody in another country. The whole point is, is if you are part of the church in a universal sense, then you are blessed by those who hold the office of apostle. And it's for life. Acts 26, verses 16 to 18. 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. And they're not just apostles in general. He says, apostle of Christ Jesus. Well, I've gone way over. We'll finish out the rest of this greeting as we come back in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.